Hi, I'm Carrie Schmidt, and this is Making Sense, a podcast produced by the Star Institute in an effort to further our commitment to impacting quality of life by developing and promoting best practices for sensory health and wellness through treatment, education, and research. Occupational therapy best practices ask us to integrate knowledge into practice. Each episode offers a different conversation aimed at translating the most current research into clinical action for occupational therapy practitioners. This season of Making Sense is sponsored by Calm Strips. Calm Strips began as a small piece of blue tape wrapped on the founder's finger. He looked a bit silly wearing the tape, not to mention he had a lone sticky finger at the end of the day. So then came the idea to create something that you could stick anywhere and take everywhere, you may need a little bit of calm. Calm Strips is unwaveringly dedicated to their mission to further destigmatize the need for support and help. Calm Strips, take a bit of calm with you everywhere. Okay, I'm joined today by Antoine Balliard. Thank you for being here today. Um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's quite an honor. I grew up moving back and forth between uh, France and the United States. And, um, you know, it was a very difficult experience as a child. You know, I, I did f- uh, five schools in four years one time, and I can't even count how many times I moved and how many schools I did. But, you know, it, it really uh, made me who I am today. Uh, and it really informed my uh, my work that I do right now. In fact, you know, every I, all the research I do in occupational therapy is significantly informed by these experiences of moving back and forth between cultures. You know, always having so-called objective uh, ways of being uh, conflicting against each other every time I move back and forth. So yeah, uh, that that was sort of gave me this sort of cultural critique as I was growing up and got into college, and then. Um, I landed in North Carolina the last time we moved in the United States and landed at UNC Chapel Hill, where I discovered OT after college as I was working with adults um, with autism. I was uh, working in supported employment for Division Teach at UNC. Uh, it was terrific work. Um, and that's how I discovered OT. And then I, I went to the master's program in OT at, at UNC. I fell in love with OT, started working in inpatient psychiatry in quickly fell out of love with the system and realized how broken the mental health system is. And it was infuriating to me and the, uh, the injustices I witnessed. And I, I, I came quickly to realize that in many ways, inpatient psychiatry, particularly acute inpatient psychiatry did more harm than it, it did good. And um, so I needed to make a change. And that's why I went back and got my doctorate and my PhD. And, and that's really why I, I'm, I'm, in my role right now in doing research. It's uh, the injustices I encountered were just too much for me to tolerate. And um, well, here I am now. <laughs> so my research in sensory was greatly informed by my past, you know, again, moving back and forth between cultures, but also my work uh, in autism, because as we all know, you know, that's such a significant piece of that work. And then moving into mental health, you know, I had that sort of autism lens, that sensory lens, and I started encountering all this research um, that, that was demonstrating there, there are, uh, you know, uh, neurological things that have been very proven. So I don't like using sensory processing so much, but that's the terms that they use. But they, they were basically uh, all these all this research was showing that there was atypical sensory processing in this group, particularly in the auditory uh, system. That's when I realized that uh, bringing in my experiences working with people on the autism spectrum, that I could bring those experiences to work with folks with serious mental illness. And that was something that was needed, that was absent. Uh, and it's just been a really exciting ride since then because I've really been able to immediately see 
how effective um, bringing this knowledge to that population has been. Uh, because most folks are completely unaware that people with serious mental illness have atypical um, uh, sensory experiences. They think of hallucinations, but they don't think about all the other uh, sensory experiences that, that create their lived experience. And we're mostly focused on symptom reduction, emotional regulation, and not enough on sensory health. Uh, which is why I really enjoy interacting with uh, you folks at the Starry Institute because you talk about sensory health. You're not, you've moved beyond these more antiquated ways of thinking in terms of sensory processing, sensory integration. We're talking about sensory health, which is really exciting to me. So thanks again uh, for having me on board here. Yeah, no, thank you. That's one of the reasons we wanted to amplify your voice around this is because I think we do have a shared passion for sensory health and wellness. Um, and so um, in preparation for this, I was um, privileged enough to read some of your articles that you've written. And first, I really admire your writing. You're a very gifted writer. Um, but second, I admire the way you're able to bring um, issues around health, sensory health and wellness, back to occupation, which is such at the core of occupational therapy and um, such a fundamental part of our interest. Um, and it renewed my interest in kind of refocusing on the importance of occupation um, as a consideration to everything that everybody does, right? Not, not just um, kind of a narrow focus on it, but just kind of the importance of that. And so I kind of took two articles that might not feel super related, but um, found kind of a common thread. And so the first was your 2013 article about the embodied sensory experiences of Latino migrants to small town, North Carolina. And that was um, again in, in 2013. And we'll reference all of this. So people who are listening, it'll be in the notes. You can go look it up. Um, and then the second article was a 2018 article that you wrote with Amanda Carroll and Aaron Dahlman. And it was about the inescapable corporal reality of occupation, integrating Merleau-Ponty into the study of occupation. And so while it might not occur to everyone that this is a common thread, <laughs> the <Yes>. thread that <laughs> I really wanted to pull was kind of this idea that there are philosophical and scientific underpinnings to pre-conscious sensory processing um, and how that in fact affects embodied occupation. <laughs> Right. So um, okay. I propose that to you and in, in, um, you're such a good sport to say that sounds great. Um, but the um, the thing I thought we could kind of use to ground and give us a framework was um, the occupational therapy practice framework, something that we're all familiar with. And um, so I thought, why don't we start there? Why don't we start with um, something that I really admired in your writing, which was your dedication to occupation. And then let's weave in kind of those ideas around um, pre-conscious um, sensations, sensory experiences, um, and embodied occupation. Does that sound good? Sounds terrific. Thank you. <laughs> okay, great. So, um, so let's just start with occupation then. Let's start with um, the way it's defined in our occupational therapy practice framework. And that is that occupation denotes personalized and meaningful engagement in daily lives. So I thought it'd be fun to pull that apart a little bit. Let's talk about the way the occupation is personalized. We agree that human beings are sensory beings. Um, and so what does that mean to you? What does it mean that occupation is personalized? So it's, um, 
I have multiple thoughts on this. So the, using the term personalized here, I see that as a good and bad thing, actually. Uh, the, the positive side of it is uh, when we're talking about personalized occupation, we're really emphasizing, you know, the unique expression of, a, of an occupation when we're talking about that. You know, that one person's occupation is not at all similar to another person's occupation. Okay, uh, so we, I like to talk about occupational expressions instead of participation, because I feel like when we say occupational participation, we might assume that it looks the same, and we, it might look the same on the, on the surface, but in reality, when you really start digging, it's actually very different for everybody, and a lot of that has to do with these embodied uh, experiences. Uh, so in any given moment, a particular occupational expression emerges from that combination of environment, occupation, and person, right? The classic PEO model. Um, there, there are a lot of other models that, that talk about that. So when we think about it, you know, of occupation emerging um, uh, in a moment, it is really unique because the environment is always changing. The person is always changing. The ways of doing are always changing. We're not the same person from one minute to the next. Even uh, our, our our level of arousal is changing throughout the day. We, you know, we 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 maybe just had some food, or maybe had some coffee, or or you know, just engaged in an activity that that changed our our feelings. So an expression of an occupation doesn't look the same from day to day. So I really appreciate that definition in highlighting that piece of it. What I don't dislike about it, though, is it sort of uh, gives short change to the sociocultural influences on that expression, right? And that's where, um, you know, uh, it's a, probably good uh, for me to reference my research and um, especially that uh, 2013 article. And there was a 2015 one with um, uh, 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 Latino immigrants as well that sort of deepened those findings. But... What those articles demonstrated was that, yes, we have biological sensory faculties when we're, we're born, correct. But those, they do develop over time as well, correct. But those are also in, developed in conjunction with these experiences, these occupational experiences that are sociocultural. So these sensory faculties, you know, this is me really summarizing my research, essentially are, uh, are either nurtured or extinguished depending on the experience, the occupational experiences people have. So long story short, a particular personalized occupational expression is personal, but not entirely. It is very much sociocultural. And um, the personal part of it is that, you know, we bring all these experiences together in a, in a moment, but a lot of those experiences are, are sociocultural, including just our understanding of our experiences, the manner in which we, that the, the, the cognitive frames that we put on our experiences to unpack them. You know, pre, we used to think about senses as five senses. Now we know there's like many more sensory systems. Now we're thinking in a much more integrated fashion. So our cognitive understandings of these experiences are social, sociocultural, historical, and they're not necessarily very personal in that sense, right? Because we're using the same tools to unpack our experiences. Um, so yeah, long story short, I think it's a great way of talking about it, as long as you understand that personalized is not separate from um, sociocultural, historical, environmental experiences. I love that because you bring up both um, uh, culture, but you also, I there's an undertone of justice there too, which you said was a real passion for you, right? Because yes. we understand what is personal um, is also related to um, our freedoms, right? Absolutely. Our sociocultural ability to express um, those personalized um, experiences. Um, and I think the word um, occupational expression or the terminology expression, it really does help us think about preference um, mm -hmm. 
freedom, like justice, right? Like some of those kind of those bigger issues around it because preferences are, um, as we know, established a lot of times through sensation, through our experiential sensory knowledge, we establish preferences. And then that's where our understanding begins, I think. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. Having a preference, having laid down a sensory preference helps um, kind of the next level of understanding. And that leads us straight into the second part of this definition, which is meaning. Because um, without kind of all of that experiential knowledge, which, you know, is individualized, if not personal, um, and I have my little air quote fingers there, um, but, um, you know, I, that's all necessary for meaning making. Um, and so occupation, um, you know, denotes personalized and meaningful engagement. So let's talk a little bit about that, that term meaningful. Well, so, I mean, that's really the, uh, the crux of it all, uh, because if you're, when your experiences are not meaningful, you're much less likely to embody them, uh, your, your, your sensory experiences. Uh, probably the most uh, obvious uh, exam exemplar of that is, you know, PTSD. Uh, folks who have extremely traumatic experiences and have very, very viscerally embodied that, that traumatic experience such that it's re-triggered by those sensory experiences, right? That is evidence right there. Um, but then there's plenty of research showing that people embody their, um, their, their environments. Uh, the question is, you know, I guess the, the thing that I've been dealing with more is um, lately is like, what, what makes it a uh, 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 an experience such that that experience is more embodied. Um, the uh, the I'm sorry. The uh, the sensory motor experiences in that moment are more embodied. What 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 makes it an aesthetic experience such that that becomes more a part of you? Because not all of our experiences are are equally become a part of us, if you will. Um, you know, the body keeps count, right? That's a that's a, a, a an excellent book. Uh, but the idea is it doesn't keep count of everything, right? And so what what makes one experience you know, your body keep count of that experience as opposed to another. Well, that's where meaning comes in, I, th I believe. And uh, how's that meaning fostered? Uh, well, it's entirely, I mean, in my opinion, uh, and this is not just a random opinion, but like, you know, through my research and through the the, the philosophy I've read, uh, Merleau-Ponty, uh, John Dewey, and uh, Pierre Bourdieu uh, all have very similar ideas around this on how um, uh, socially ingrained we are and how uh, our, our meaningful experiences cause that embodiment of, of, of uh, our social environment, including the sensory ways of being. You know, if you, if you go back, uh, a lot of folks argue, there's this particular article I think is really interesting, uh, written by Atzil and all, A-T-Z-I-L. Um, and I, I wish I could tell you the year right now. I cited it in my uh, talk uh, at Colorado State uh, not too long ago, but uh, it, it talks about the social brain and how you're born. Basically, humans are born very uh, dependent on their social environment and their caregivers. Uh, it, when you compare us to other animals, we're born extremely dependent. You know, many animals are able to walk uh, soon after birth, and it, it takes us a very long time. And so, the argument here is that we start associating our allostatic regulation to social interaction. Uh, basically, we cry because we don't feel well. We need hung, You know, we need food. We need to be comforted. We're cold, so we we cry out and then a social stimulus comes in and makes us feel comfortable. And so the argument there, and I, I actually really much, very much buy into it, is that in doing so, you associate social experiences with comfort, allostatic regulation, and so ways of being that you're exposed to, sensory ways of being included, then also become part of who you are. Um, 
no, so that that's sort of like the mechanism that explains, um, uh, you know, the whole habit formation is the mechanism that explains what I've seen in my research um, and how uh, people from different cultures will have just very fundamental so-called objective. We like to call our taste objective, but they're not really. They'll have different expectations for flavors. They'll have different expectations for sensory experiences. And those are all predicated on their past sociocultural experiences. Um, they also have different ways of being that are, are based on those past sociocultural experiences. And, 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 and it's because of meaningful occupational uh, participation that you sort of incorporate these ways of being, these social expressions. And that's where justice comes in, right? Because you, essentially your sensory way of being the sociocultural part of it, right? Because we obviously are very much biological individuals, right? But the sociocultural part is very much historical and very much dependent on what you've been um, exposed to. And so in a lot of ways, you know, then, I'm sorry, let me back up a bit, but then we create these environments that have expectations of how you interact with them, ways of being and sensory experiences. Uh, we, we, we create environments that, that, that really are, are formed around certain sensory ways of being. And this is not news to you and your, and your audience, I'm sure, of course, but uh, what that means though, is that those, you know, you know those environments aren't set up for folks who, um, who have very different uh, experiences and ways of being that are sensory based. And it becomes an issue of justice because it's just unfair, right? That, that we create these environments that are not accessible to folks solely based on their social cultural experiences. So when I talk about ways of being, I mean, it's even things like uh, how you eat. And um, you know, you're very much, your habits of eating, your habits of doing are very much based on your sensory um, habits. I, um, in one of my studies, I, I, I don't wanna say discovered, but like one of my, my participants cued me into this idea of a sensory anchor, where uh, these are like these pre-reflective things that we that we look for, or we're not really consciously look for, but we're we're keeping count. These pre-reflective sensory experiences that that, that uh, show us that our actions are going as planned, and um, and when those things are violated or don't or don't exist, like when a sensory anchor is not there, all of a sudden your habit your uh, comes into. Um, it breaks down and you are uh, all of a sudden conscious of that and you have to problem solve. So a good example of this is uh, uh, one of my students actually gave me this example recently when we were discussing this. Uh, so she was driving this habitual route all the time. You know how when you're driving a habitual route, you just fade out and you start thinking about whatever and you're not even noticing what's going on. And so she was driving her route and then all of a sudden she was disoriented and had no idea where she was. And she couldn't understand what was going on. And she, she looked at her map and realized, well, no, I'm actually exactly where I was supposed to be. And she realized that her disorientation was because there had been this very large tree that had always been there that she had always seen. It was like that sensory anchor there. And now it was missing and it was gone. The sensory anchor was gone. And she, she noticed it at a pre-reflective level, and, but didn't notice it consciously. And it took her a while to come around to see that, oh, no, that was what was missing. So when we start thinking about things like that, you know, uh, sensory anchors being these things that are, are developed socioculturally as well through our, our habits of occupations. So these sensory anchors become embedded in our occupational expressions as things that we use to express our occupations. Because if we have to sit back and think about every step of an occupation, I mean, that's really incredibly hard. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing that we have these habits that we can rely on. And so, you know, you bring forth these sensory anchors from your sociocultural experiences and whether those mesh well with new environments or not is an issue of justice, uh, in my opinion. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's a very long winded winding answer to your question, I think.
No, I love it because I think it bridges the gap for us, right? Like we, we can talk about how we're sensory beings all day, but, but what bridges us to environment expectations, engagement therein, right? And, and those are some of the, the bridges, like this idea of um, sociocultural um, in, influences, relationship, like those are the things that allow us to come out of just being, being <laughs> and um, come into um, being in relationship, being engaged, you know, whether that relationship is with a person or with our environment, right? So it kind of brings us into a little bit more of a conversation around um, action, right? Like how do those things um, influence our ability to engage, act on our environment, um, connect to the world? And it's a question that we're always asking in occupational therapy, right? Like how can we help this client bridge the gap to the, to achieve the level of engagement in occupation that they desire that feels healthy and feels well to them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it actually, while, you know, while a kind of a broader um, interpretation of it all helps us understand what is important. Why is that? Why is that work um, so nuanced? <laughs> Why does it feel sometimes like a bridge too far um, mm -hmm. while we break it down into personalized and meaningful engagement is really what we're after. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're after um, health, mm. but health through participation, you know, health as meaningful doing. And uh, yeah, the sensory piece is absolutely uh, critical to that. Um, you know, the more uh, there's more and more research coming out that's showing that uh, potentially this is a new argument coming out that, you know, our cognitive thoughts, what we think is separate from sensory systems is actually um, not so separate and uh, deeply integrated. It. Uh, I actually have a paper um, in the Journal of Occupational Science right now. It's going to be published soon. And it's all about embodiment and emplacement. And what we did is we did a review of uh, a bunch of um, uh, perspectives across disciplines on uh, disciplinary perspectives and embodiment. So we went to neuroscience, humanistic geography, sociology, et cetera, et cetera. And it was really interesting um, in cognitive psychology and to, really interesting to see um, that there's that, th this spectrum of embodiment that, uh, that uh, some folks have identified across these disciplines where there's the antiquated view of cognitive psychology, like the old view where we have cognitive, our thoughts are completely entirely separate from our senses. And our thoughts are very abstract. That's like the old school way of thinking of things. And then you have all these different versions of embodiment that uh, theories that increasingly involved sensory motor signals with the cognition. So then it becomes like it mediates it, then it modulates it, right? So mediating being you know, like they're, 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 they're sort of separate and one slightly influenced, they modulate it, they're a little bit closer together, all the way to full embodiment where some folks are starting to argue where your cognitions, your thoughts uh, are literally sensory motor activations that are very complex and together. And the more I do my research, the more I'm leading towards that. Um, and it's kind of, it's really hard to think of things that way. You know, uh, it's really hard to think about our bodies being so integrated with uh, our minds. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is our bodies are completely integrated with our minds. One cannot exist without the other. And, um, you know, there's a whole, 
there's many historical reasons on why we like to hold on to the mind-body dualism, but uh, you know everything in our daily experiences uh, go against that thinking. And I just find it very interesting to start thinking about you know these these facts of the things that we say are literally sensory motor activations, which explains why saying things feels right and sometimes it feels wrong, um, and that we we have these like visceral reactions uh, as we're talking. It's it's just a really interesting direction in research I find. So. Um, I think it has tremendous implications for, for occupational therapy and occupational science if we start thinking about it that way. I mean, it certainly provides a lot of evidence in terms of the, the bottom-up approach um, and making sure uh, that a person is uh, feeling se uh, safe uh, sensory-wise, feeling good sensory-wise for them to be able to participate in anything, and, and especially things that are cognitive, which makes a lot of sense too, because if you're not feeling good sensory-wise, how, how are you able to think? No, not very well at all. I mean, you know, it's just very difficult. So I, I'm just really intrigued by this new direction in neuroscience. Um, Lisa Barrett Feldman has done a lot of this work. Uh, you're nodding, so you, you, I think you might know her name. Yes, yes, I admire her work a lot. She's a brilliant, yeah. Uh, uh, so it's just really neat to see all this neuroscience coming out, all these different findings in anthropology. I mean, they've been on this bandwagon for a very long time. All this stuff's having synergy with these philosophers too, who've been writing about this a long time. Uh, Merle Ponty, Merle Ponty, I'm sorry, being the one that really dove into the sensory experiences. Um, it's it's just, uh, I, I don't think that this is like the truth with a big T, right? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure I believe in those things, uh, it, but it's just another way of looking at experience that I, I find is is more, just makes more sense to me uh, than the very mechanistic ways we're looking at lived experience right now. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm not I'm not naive enough to think that we figured it out, but I do think we're we're uh, we're moving in a better direction than what we where we have been. And so, this I idea that everything we can think about is actually sensory motor is amazing to me. Sorry to interrupt. I, I love it. No, I can't wait to read more about that because I think um, you know what you're bringing to the surface is what we're always after, and that's um, not just following the science where it leads us, right? Not just being so grateful for the advances in science and what how they help us understand, but to live a more integrated life because we believe that that is a healthier life. And if we do understand how um, our body and our mind are integrated, what that um, looks like out in the world, um, whether that's through action, um, you know, or the actions that are additive that end up being occupation, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's just um, it's just fascinating to think that what we kind of have always believed to be true, which is this integrative additive kind of, um, you know, perspective, strengths-based perspective um, can be supported by science um, mm -hmm. and to, to, you know, to do the deep dive into science, to look what science is showing us. Um, and it's exciting when it kind of, expands our understanding, I think, of that integrative capacity. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very exciting to me. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about um, about that, about action on the world, um, because, um, you know, some of your work highlights kind of the idea that sensation gives us this experiential knowledge, right? And then one thing I, I was kind of interested in that caught my eye um, in your 2018 article talked a little bit about this um, embodied kind of action on the world and it was embodied 
pre-reflective life has a directness and intentional arc whereby the body is the access around access, excuse me, around which possibilities of action organize based on each person's history of action. I mean, so it's what you're talking about a little bit, just about this integrated mind body um, and how that shows up in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, so uh, that was a quote from that paper. And I was uh, paraphrasing um, uh, an author who was summarizing Merle Ponty's work. Uh, but I've actually read a, you know, a fair amount of Merle Ponty too. Um, this intentional arc idea, it, it all ties back to justice, by the way, too. Um, I'm going to start talking and then hopefully I'll end up with justice. If I forget that, please remind me. Um, but this, the, the idea of intentional arcs, now that is very much Merle Ponty's idea. And so his philosophy and my research is totally backing this up and my personal experiences really um, line up with this as well. But the idea of the intentional arc is that through your, uh, well, we're gonna talk about occupations because this is what we do, right? Through your participation, your meaningful occupations that you be you, you embody, you internalize, if you will, um, uh, these, these possibilities of action that are these intentional arcs. So you, you see a new environment, Whenever you come into an environment, it's like overflowing with possibilities, right? Our environments are not like cut out like this. When, with our vision, it's actually overflowing. You know, you turn your head and there's more and more and it keeps going and everything is coming in at once. It's a lot to deal with. And so uh, we have developed this amazing ability to pull things out of the back, to figure ground. You know, I mean, this is pure OT, right? So we encounter this just really messy, overflowing sensory stimulus stimuli, you know, tons of it. And then through our, our, our occupational participation, through our sociocultural experience uh, participation, our meaningful participation uh, with our families, with our friends, we become accustomed to pulling certain things out of that environment, creating objects, if you will, right? Uh, so a good example of that, uh, with my kids, I have um, twins, seven-year-olds, and uh, we take a lot of hikes. I, I love to go out in nature with them. And um, I'll never forget this. Uh, so for them, it's this world that's just like overflowing with possibility. And I take them out to hiking and then I start pointing out these objects, these figures uh, among the background. Oh, look at that sun. Look at the color it's, it's giving or look at that animal over there. Look up here, that kind of a thing. And then they actually embody that experience. And then I have found that in, in past in subsequent hikes, then they're doing that to me. So it's, it's like this evidence that, you know, they, they have in, sort of internalized this, this way of interacting with the world sensorially. So, you know, to put Merle Ponty's terms on that, I was essentially creating intentional arcs for them. These figure, figures among the background are these intentional arcs that are these possibilities of action that are sensory based and that are meaningful to a person, right? So in doing so, the environment is no longer overflowing with possibilities. I mean, even though it is, now it's, it's got these intentional arcs here in place, several of them. And so when the, per, when the, the person encounters a new space, they will see new intentional arcs that are, you know, uh, based on their past experiences with other environments. And, uh, and those things sort of pull them towards action, right? Which really speaks to the habit of it. Uh, and so, you know, two different people come to a situation, we have different intentional arcs. We may have some that are similar, but I doubt they're entirely similar. And they, you know, they may take precedence over others. Some may stand out more than others. Um, and so the reason this becomes an issue of justice is because it, it shows you, if you if you accept this way of thinking, you know, it shows you that your past sociocultural experiences really determined what intentional arcs are available for you, 
regardless of what's actually you know available for everybody. And so if you have an impoverished experience, you have fewer intentional arcs, fewer possibilities of action, which gives you fewer uh, opportunities to, 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 to experience you know, flourishing, thriving, whatever. It's just fewer opportunities to engage in different types of interactions with that environment. And uh, in a lot of ways, you're preventing people, well, not preventing, but a person with fewer intentional arcs is probably less likely to engage in different types of behaviors in different types of situations. And that you could argue would prevent certain skill development uh, because of exposure to different opportunities for different types of skills. Uh, so, you know, you can really pull that thread and keep going with it. Uh, but uh, essentially that's the idea of the intentional arc. So when, when I say that the body is the axis around which possibilities of action organize, well, that's exactly what we're talking about. Your body is literally pre-reflectively as if it's its own entity, even though it's not, right? But pre-reflectively, it's already pulling you cognitively, you're not even realizing it, towards these different actions. Mm -hmm. So I hope I explained that somewhat. No, I love that. And I, I just, you know, I just wonder if occupational therapy intervention, um, one of the gifts of intervention is to create intentional arcs. Absolutely. Um, create possibility to carry the torch of occupational justice to create possibility where there was none um, before. And whether that's helping um, a, a young child recognize the affordances in their environment um, or taking it even further into um, patterned behaviors, which you kind of mentioned um, as, as habits, right? Because that's a big part of our, our framework too is looking at um, performance patterns within the context of occupational therapy and habits is one of those patterns that we look at. Um, and that really is, you know, patterned behavior um, that is acquired um, perhaps through recognition of intentional arcs in, you know, in our environment. Absolutely. I mean, just the, uh, you could argue that a bodily habit is the, uh, one that you're not necessarily cognitively aware of, but the bodily uh, habit is its orientation towards these intentional arcs. And I catch myself doing this stuff all the time. You know, we're like, uh, I'll be driving home, for instance, and I catch myself always looking in the same direction when I do in a, when I pass a corner, or you know, these like these interesting behaviors that are these these small motor behaviors that I engage in that are not really at all beneficial or not. You know, they're not they're they're, they're sort of like. They're just random behaviors, but that I repeat all the time um, because they're habits and, it, and because it feels good, right? Enacting a habit, whether it's a positive habit for health or not, and that's a whole different issue we could talk about another day, but enacting any habit just feels right. That's why they're habits. That's the, their power, their inertia. And why does it feel good? Why does it feel right? In my opinion, is because it reactivates those sensory motor experiences. Your brain, it, it just flows in a way that you're, 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 you're used to and you're ready for and so that feels right. Whether the outcome is good or not for you in health long-term is a totally different question, but that's, so habit is sensory motor. Sure. I mean, it brings back the, um, when, when habits are broken down, right. And popularized in books like atomic habits, they, they talk about, there's all these kind of steps to habit formation. And one of them is a cue, right. And so you think about like, 
those cues are often sensory cues, right? Yes, absolutely. That we have, this is pre-reflective again, we haven't made meaning out of that cue, but it lives somewhere in our experience. Um, and that's how we can form both good and bad habits, right? Because right. Um, it doesn't always work out to be what's best for our health and wellness, um, but somewhere along the way, um, that cue became meaningful to us somehow. Absolutely. Yes. Um, because it lives in us. It's experiential in us. I mean, who knows what you're passing on the way home that's giving you that cue to look right. in that direction, right? It's a pre-reflective sensory cue. Well, um, at this point is just me getting to that turn. Now I'm, I'm always looking at that direction. So I'm always looking at the same house now. It's, it's interesting. Um, yeah. Just based on those sensory habits. Sorry. And then I think, you know, collectively um, habits become routines right? Like we build patterns of um, behavior. We sequence them, we repeat them. And um, routines are important because they provide structure in our lives. And um, for wellness, routines is one of the things that people find um, helps them maybe recenter or refocus when um, they're not in the best of health. Um, or they can use routines to build um, a healthier life. So um, talk a little bit about routines and, and kind of your, your thinking on them. Well, so, I mean, you know, I can't think about habits and routines. Well, I can't think about habits without routines and vice versa, but I can't think about either one of them without sensory. Uh, the whole, you know, from everything, all my work that I've done, uh, the, uh, the whole formation of a habit is sensory. I mean, like you're saying, like the cue and then, uh, and then just the, the, the unfolding of it, the expression of it and how you feel about it, all of that is sensory. I mean, that's the whole point is that it never gets to that cognitive reflection, the reflective piece. And it's uh, just a bunch of sensations that, that, that guide you along. Um, and so these sensory angers, for instance, that I, that I, uh, that I mentioned there, it's like that interface between your expectation, your sensory habit, what you're, you're tacitly looking for to continue flowing in habit, you're looking for it in the environment. And like, that's the sensory anchor. Is it there to, 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 for you, for your action to unfold without thinking. And if it's not, then, then there's the disruption. Then there's what I want to call the sensory dissonance in the moment. And uh, that that's not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, that's the moment when your sensory habits no longer merge well with the sensory environment, such that your cognitive, you, you, you become, you become cognitively aware of it. And it is something that kind of led to this field of sensory processing and integration work, right? Because we, people were finding there were some challenges or there was some dissonance or there was a difference um, maybe in the way that their body was processing sensation. And so they had an obstacle to um, whatever step, maybe it was the meaning-making step in habit formation um, mm -hmm. because it was hard to make meaning of sensation you couldn't make sense of. Right. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or the meaning is just not in line with the cognitive structures of the typical individual. Mm -hmm. The meaning is there. I just think uh, that we've created a world uh, that we take for granted in how our, 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 how many tools and structures that we apply to our daily existence that we think are natural, but they're not. They're actually arbitrary. They just developed over time. I mean, language is the perfect example of it. Um, it's arbitrary, as we can see across the world, and it evolves over time too, but it's it completely a tool for understanding. And so much of what we do, including our occupations and how they're supposed to fold out, like unfold, I mean, uh, are with these tools of understanding. And so I, I just, when um, someone with a, a so-called sensory deficit is just really somebody who just doesn't match the structure, the, the, the mainstream structure. And 
I have a hard time accepting that that is a deficit. It's just a difference, in my opinion. Um, I'm very much an ascriber to the social model of disability, where uh, the environment is what is actually creating it. If you were to remove all of the structures we have right now, who's to say that someone with uh, some of these so-called issues couldn't be just as happy and, uh, I don't know, just having a, a very thriving life? Uh, I just feel like we're the ones in general that are, that are, that are disabling people. Uh, because of their differences in sensory experiences. But, you know, many people might think differently on that. Um, I had another thought, but I just lost it. I'm sorry. It's okay. No, I think it's, um, I mean, it's a shared perspective at STAR, right? Like we're really trying so, to bring yeah. in voices um, that are telling us um, what it is like to be a sensory being in the world. And if it's an obstacle um, to them to be um, seen as having a deficit, we don't want that to be the case. You know, we would like to um, affirm that we're all experiencing the world um, with sensory differences. So now let's figure out how to change the world, right? <laughs> to welcome <laughs> us all um, and, you know, level the playing field. But I think what this all connotes is like this idea that all of these structures were formed um, because we live in relationship, because we have a collective. And that really brings us into this idea of roles within the collective, right? So um, roles and um, roles and rituals, um, they are inherently relational in some way to me. That like when we when we get out of habits and routines, which can be really really personal, and push into roles and rituals, we start talking about broader context of living in relationship, of living in culture, of living, um, you know, in environments may or may not be friendly to our systems. Yes, and we're really talking about uh, social habits and uh, community habits, uh, macro habits there, uh, our ways of, of cutting up our realities that are shared amongst us. Um, I, I remember the thought that I, I was just about to have that I had forgotten. Um, about language, and uh, it may not be relevant, but I just think it's a really important, a uh, really neat idea that Merle Ponty would talk about is how language completes thought. And so you have these like amorphous experiences, these amorphous sensations that you can't necessarily uh, fully explain, but then you put language on it. Uh, and that is not, these are not all your words. They're not your words. You didn't make them up. They have uh, tacit meanings onto them. And so in laying your the the words and the language and the grammar on top of these amorphous feelings and sensations that uh it becomes a, uh, an expression of society actually in some ways if that makes any sense right uh and so this all says like it, it's really hard for us to access these these things these experiences that are occurring in the background because of like the way we've evolved we try to be cognitive so much and it's all about the figure of, uh, amongst the background, yet you and I, what we're really interested in talking about, and what I'm interested in researching is the background, but the second you start talking about it, it goes into the foreground, and so you lose that, the, the reality of it, um, and how, uh, uh, what it is without putting thought and language to it, because that's really what I'm after, and uh, it's an incredibly difficult thing to study, uh, because how, how do you put words and, and, and cognitions to something uh, that you're trying to study, uh, which is not occurring in in that area. You know, it's it's always behind it. Uh, if that makes any sense, I don't know if I'm um, explaining myself well here. These are just these can be like you know pretty weird conversations for folks that have who are not used to thinking about this. Um, I, I just love find the it broader. Important. I love the broader conversation around it though, because I mean, you could apply what you just said, um, for example, to the work of Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Right? She has has done a deep dive on emotion and yes. 
has, has, you know, given us this beautiful theory of constructed emotion and, and incorporated in that a lot of what you're talking about, about cultural, the cultural influence of um, emotion um, specific to language um, mm -hmm. that, you know, we're going to label um, sensation, um, which is um, initially and um, fundamentally interoceptive with a concept that's yep. given to us with language was given to us with um with a, within our culture and we're going to label it and if we label that experience an emotion experience it becomes an emotional experience right right and so um you know it just brings it all back together the importance of kind of really zooming out and looking at some of the broader context things to understand things that are brought to us every day like emotion regulation mm -hmm. yeah i mean it helps us be uh critical in like the positive critique way right uh, critical in the sense that you don't just take something for granted and you you always question it uh because for so long we've been applying this idea that senses are separate uh that we have this auditory system that's functioning on its own uh and all that comes into our, our brainstem and then we integrate it with all the other sensory experiences that's very much an old school kind of way of thinking. Uh, it's a very much, it's a very unique way of thinking, uh, and we need to be critiquing that. Uh, but it's so fundamental to everyone's understanding of existence that you know it's like everyone you talk to is like, yeah, we got five senses. Well, any OT you talk to is like, well, we actually have you know vestibular and the proprioception as all, so we actually have seven senses. And then you, if you, you talk to other neuroscientists, it's like the list keeps going on. And if you talk to your uh, your phenomenologist or your your humanistic geographer, they're going to be like, well, we don't have single systems. It's actually one sensory experience and i find that very interesting i've got another paper uh that's under review right now in the canadian journal uh and uh, we did a really cool study with uh, adults with schizophrenia uh, well actually psychotic disorders so not just schizophrenia and we did a walking with video with them where we followed them with a video uh recording of an occupation of their choice and they reflected on their sensory experiences this is one of my feeble attempts to get at that background information and then we also uh they did some photo elicitation where they took pictures of meaningful sensory experiences and then we had an interview where they talked about the pictures and then they also watched the video and talked about it more so it was like video elicitation photo elicitation and what came out is um, they were always talking about polysensoriality, really, which is the title of the paper, polysensoriality, et cetera, et cetera. There's some other words in there. But the concept was is that you're never really experiencing um, something in isolation. I mean, you, you aren't. You never are. And uh, we need to move away from that. So they were giving really cool examples on how um, one guy was talking about music, for instance, and how particular canned music, he called it, pop music. He didn't like it so much, but when he but, it, you know, it didn't bother him excessively but when he would be in a car coupled with the vestibular input at least he said it made him nauseous and i thought that was really interesting because it's like the, you know it was the 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 togetherness of it it was it wasn't just this stimulus standing on its own it was the the lived experience in the moment with everything else um and we just have this tendency to cut up experience to remove it from the flow of everyday life and to think of you know okay so and so is having a, a sensory issue uh, in this moment we're going to identify this sensation this sensory stimulus we're going to do whatever we can to avoid it or you know to mitigate that one and we're missing the boat because like it's embedded in this like daily life um and it's it's just not that simple and i know we're always looking for simple answers but uh, life it's just much more complicated i think than many folks are are giving uh, um credence to it um yeah well, I think it just comes full circle to the importance of individualizing our approach, right? Absolutely. To considering all of these um, background and foreground issues that are going on um, 
from sociocultural influence um, to occupational justice to freedoms um, all the way through to discrete sensory experiences um, mm -hmm. and to just individualizing our approach um, and giving it giving each thing it's I guess it's rightful due you know it's um, uh, normalizing that as just being human right yeah that's another piece we don't talk about enough. How often do you read the humanity and dignity in some of this literature? Um, I don't know if you're aware of Frank Cronenberg uh, mm -hmm. from South Africa. He did a lot of work. Uh, he wrote the, he was one of the editors of Occupational Therapy Without Borders. And uh, that was a reflection he had uh, at uh, WFOT in South Africa when we were there in Cape Town. And he was talking, he had a project where he actually looked at how many times the word humanity or human was uh, listed in the OT literature. And it was like, it was very low, uh, very infrequently. And I, and I find that to be problematic uh, because it, it, like it, when we start talking about sensory experiences, and I know y'all have to start since you're not doing this because you're talking about sensory health and you're much more holistic. But a lot of folks, when we start talking about sensory experience, we lose the humanity, we lose the dignity, we cut it up. And then we're really like reducing uh, and focusing on sensory. Um, the worst example are the kids, you know, who, who are flapping and we're trying to get them to stop doing that. Um, that's an issue of justice, right? Uh, there is meaning in that movement. There's something happening there that the person is, is getting a lot out of, yet we're coming in and saying, no, this is not appropriate in this environment. Um, that's completely arbitrary. It's just because we have this sociocultural way of being, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And I just, you know, I, I find it very uh, frustrating uh, when we, we lose sight of the, the person and their, their humanity and dignity like that. Yeah, no, that's a definitely a shared perspective, a shared value with us. Um, between us. Um, well, I hope you'll come back and do this again, because I feel like we could talk for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> Easily. I, I'm a big nerd about this kind of stuff. I love it. <laughs> no, we love it too. We love your um, perspective on it all. And I can't wait to hear and read more about these um, studies that you mentioned that are coming out. But um, one thing I'd love to ask you before, before we wrap up is, um, we do have this value around curiosity at STAR, around question asking, um, around watching science and society evolve and evolving with it. So I'd love to hear something that maybe you once believed that you've either changed your mind about or you once believed that your thinking has really evolved on. Yeah, well... Um... So, I mean, this is not very sophisticated, but um, <laughs> as I was growing up, you know, so being very French, uh, um, I, I have a different relationship with food <laughs> than maybe some folks across the world do. And in France, you know, we, we love, uh, on adore notre vin, on adore la nourriture, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that is so cultural that there's this idea that there is high culture and that there is a kind of wine that's the best. There's a kind of cheese that's the best. There's a kind of bread that's the best. And I used to be, you know, I was sold on that and thinking, you know, yeah, there, there's these objective things in the world that are the best sensory wise for us. And <laughs> the more I read, the more research I do, the more I can't accept that and realize, okay, well, maybe we can agree among most people that there is a tendency for folks to like this kind of wine better, but to say that one is better than the other is impossible because if we don't have the same sensory faculties, we do, they're not, uh, uh, expressed in the same way due to our sociocultural um, uh, upbringing. And so it just doesn't make sense to think of it as this objective thing that is better than others. So once I started thinking about it in that term, in those terms, I really started questioning everything I liked. Um, 
in terms of uh, a sensory experience. And I wondered how much time I was kind of psyching myself out. I have this really good example. So I had the, the, the incredible fortune of going uh, to Easter Island. Uh, it's called Rapa Nui, by the way, by the folks there, because some Dutch uh, 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 sailor discovered it on Easter, and that's why they call it Easter Island, which is a uh, kind of oppressive. But anyway, um, I was uh, there uh, with my wife after WFOT in Santiago, actually. That's how we ended up there. And we would have this coffee uh, on the uh, deck every morning. And it was just beautiful, you know, these, these Pacific waves crashing on this volcanic rock, the, the Moai, because if you're familiar with um, Easter Island, it's got those, those big, you know, Moai, those uh, big uh, um, stone sculptures, which are beautiful. And we loved that coffee, man, was that coffee good. And we had it all week and it was just so good. And then the last day I went up to the person who was serving us, and I was like, what is this coffee? It's amazing. Uh, you already see where I'm going with this, right? Uh, what is this coffee? It's amazing. I, I want to buy it when I get home. She was like, yeah, it's Folgers just the, the basic instant coffee. And what I, and that really highlighted it. It wasn't the objective coffee taste. It was the lived sensory. It was all of it. It was, it was the waves crashing. It was what I was seeing. It was, it was the emotional piece. Uh, all that came together to make the taste of coffee uh, in that moment. And it was the best coffee, probably still the best coffee I've ever had, but objectively, no, it wasn't, was it? It was horrible coffee, people would say. So I, I no longer believe any of it. <laughs> Uh, I question uh, myself with a lot of that stuff now. So I don't know where I stand on that. I think we just have maybe consensus on maybe uh, what is our social habit of what we have convinced ourselves we like. Maybe we have that. But in terms of objective uh, sensory experiences being objectively good and objectively bad for everybody, I disagree. Yeah. No, I love that. I think we've each had an experience like that, right? Where, where I tell really the story question. all the time. <laughs> it's very yes, embarrassing. Yes, yes. <laughs> we really question that. Um, I think it brings it back to kind of where we started, which is, um, you know, individualizing kind of our, our um, approach to everything, to really understanding that we're all unique beings with unique backgrounds, um, with unique um, restrictions and freedoms, and um, I think your work is going to bring us so much closer to incorporating humanity um, into our work. And so thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. And um, I look forward to, to reading your future work. And I hope you'll come back and do this again. Oh, I would love to. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. I admire the work y'all do. I really uh, admire your focus on sensory health. I think that is uh, the future here. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. You can find me, Carrie Schmidt on Instagram at Carrie Schmidt OTD, that's C-A-R-R-I-E-S-C-H-M-I-T-T-O-T-D. The Star Institute is a nonprofit organization. You can find out more about us at our website, sensoryhealth.org. That's www.sensoryhealth.org. There you can join our email list, Find out about our educational, clinical, and research endeavors, and make a donation. This podcast wouldn't be possible without our wonderful guests and the support from the STAR Institute, especially Crystal Hayes and Tori Pluchek. Your feedback matters to us. Please leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. This is Making Sense. I'm Carrie Schmidt.